You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Facebook's August takedowns included coordinated inauthenticity from Pakistan, Russia, and a U.S. strategic communication firm. CISA and the FBI say, nope, the Russians weren't in voter databases. A Chinese APT turns its attention from Europe back to Tibet. A new cryptocurrency stealer is active in Central Europe. New Zealand's DDoS attacks may be an extortion attempt. Joe Kerrigan has the story of a reporter's stolen Facebook account. Our guest is Ophir Harpaz from Gardacore Labs with their botnet encyclopedia. And there may be another teenage mastermind behind last month's Twitter hack. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Wednesday, September 2nd, 2020. During August, Facebook took down three networks for engaging in coordinated inauthentic behavior, that is, organized disinformation. The activity broke down as follows. 435 accounts, 103 pages, 78 groups, and 107 Instagram accounts run from Pakistan were removed. They sought influence in both Pakistan and India. The Stanford Internet Observatory characterizes these as aiming to counter criticism of either Islam or Pakistan's government. Thirteen accounts and two pages operated from Russia were taken down. Facebook said these were linked to individuals associated with past activity in the Russian Internet Research Agency. This activity was directed mostly against the U.S., the U.K., Algeria, and Egypt, with plenty of QAnon and COVID-19 chatter. Graphica says much of the network's activity involved redirection to peace data, which represents itself as a progressive independent news service. Peace Data, it's only fair to say, has reacted with outrage, shocked and appalled by what they call the ugly lie that they're a Russian propaganda tool. Facebook took action against these networks on the strength of a tip-off from the FBI. 55 accounts, 42 pages, and 96 Instagram accounts linked to the Washington-based communications firm CLS Strategies were removed. This network devoted itself to Venezuela, with some attention also paid to Mexico and Bolivia. BuzzFeed reports that CLS strategies didn't respond directly to a question about coordinated inauthenticity, 
beyond briefly stating a version of its corporate mission. The line the accounts took were in Venezuela pro-opposition, in Bolivia pro-regime, and in Mexico anti-Morena, a leftist political party. Facebook did note that CLS as a whole wasn't banned, since much of the firm's activity was legitimate. It's not yet known on behalf of what clients CLS may have been working. To return to peace data, the New York Times notes that the Internet Research Agency may have succeeded in making an American connection. According to the Times, the Russians succeeded in getting actual Americans to write for peace data, which would account for the relatively good idiomatic control on display in its posts. The Times says the Internet Research Agency posted offers for freelance writers on a job board. The Times also says it spoke to one such freelancer who was steered to peace data by an IRA job board. The writer asked to remain anonymous because he didn't wish his professional reputation damaged by his having been duped by the Russian government. He was paid $75 a post, which, relatively speaking, is chicken feed in the freelance market. So in this case, the Russians appear to have made use of the usefully gullible, what the Russian organs less politely call the Gavnoyed, the content on Peace Data's site, which the Times believes to have been designed to harm the candidacy of Democratic nominee Joe Biden by fomenting dispute within what might otherwise be a more disciplined left, contains complaint that the Democrats are insufficiently progressive on various issues and denunciation of alleged Republican closeness to unsavory far-right elements. When President Trump appears on Peace Data's pages, it's with horns, hooves, and a tail, metaphorically speaking. So if the Times is right, it's a relatively sophisticated propaganda gambit. Of course, Peace Data could just be the progressive site it claims to be, but it might be a front, too. Chatter about Russian compromise of U.S. voter databases has come to nothing. CISA and the FBI haven't seen anything of the kind during this election cycle. If you look at the Twitter comments in the agency's thread, you'll find many skeptical one-liners, but we think CISA and the Bureau have got this one right. Yesterday's flurry of tweets linking back to a Russian newspaper article seemed to be much ado about some matters of public record. Researchers at Proofpoint report that Chinese government threat group TA-413, which earlier deployed sepulcher malware against European targets, is now using it in a spearfishing campaign directed at the Tibetan diaspora. This, Proofpoint thinks, represents a realignment of Chinese cyber espionage assets from Western targets of opportunity and urgency, the COVID-19 pandemic through to the fore, and back to more traditional targeting of domestic groups the PRC holds to be unreliable and undesirable, like, of course, Tibetans. The recent wave of distributed denial-of-service attacks against targets in New Zealand, most prominently those against the NZX Stock Exchange, may have been part of an extortion campaign. Stuff reports that Government Communications Security Bureau Minister Andrew Little said that the GCSB is investigating emails received by victims shortly before the attacks that demanded a Bitcoin payoff. If there was no payment, the attackers would render the victims' networks unavailable. Beyond that, GCSB hasn't said much. The investigation continues. The mastermind of the July 15th Twitter hack, in which several high-profile and high-value accounts were briefly but effectively hijacked, is said by the U.S. Justice Department to have been 17-year-old Graham Ivan Clark. It now appears that an additional person is of interest to the investigators, 
and this person of interest is of even more tender years. The New York Times reports that the FBI has served a Massachusetts teenager with a search warrant and tossed his parents home. The parents themselves aren't suspects, but their son, who quite properly lives with them, is. The warrant and other documents are under seal, and the teenager has not been charged. The New York Times declines to name the young man on account of his youth, but they do cite sources that told them the youth of interest may have been at least partly responsible for planning the breach and carrying out some of its most sensitive and complicated elements. So instead of one mastermind, the Twitter hack may in fact have had two. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use. With zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications, so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. The folks at Gardacore Labs recently launched a botnet encyclopedia, which they describe as a universal knowledge base of past and present botnet campaigns researched by the lab's team. Ophir Harpaz is a security researcher at Gardacore Labs. So Gardacore has a special network of sensors deployed worldwide, and each one of these sensors is able to capture cyber attacks and record every single event that takes place in these attacks. And since we have this very unique database of mass scale attacks, we decided that we would like to share it with the security community so that uh, both security researchers, threat analysts, and defenders can uh, take a look at the data and maybe incorporate the data into their policies and uh, defensive mechanisms, mm. and maybe to, to expand the research themselves. I mean, we have all this data and we thought, why keep it for ourselves? That's basically the main motivation. 
So you put together Gardecor's Botnet Encyclopedia. Can you give us some examples? Or what are the types of things that uh, people can expect to find in here? So we mostly see mass scale attacks. These are opportunistic attacks uh, that aim at uh, a very, very high number of servers worldwide. And we mostly see denial of service attacks, distributed denial of service, DDoS, and crypto mining attacks. But from time to time, we also see very interesting attacks in technical terms or in terms of the scope that the attack uh, campaign reaches. Uh, so, so we can find both Mirai-like campaigns that we're all very familiar with and used to, but from time to time, we see more unique type of attacks. So we can, we can find both, both in the encyclopedia. Hmm. And where do you suppose things are headed when it comes to botnet? From from the research that you're doing, having a a very you know close look at these sorts of things, is this something that uh, we're getting a, a handle on, or are we are we staying even with with the task, or are they gaining ground on us? I think it's a kind of well, I'm not the first to say it, but it's kind of a cat and mouse game. So attackers are definitely becoming more sophisticated. I can say that. For sure, I'm looking into these attacks. They are very talented software developers. Many of them know what they do and why they do it. But on the other hand, we're also becoming smarter. We're monitoring their malicious activity and we're improving our security measures accordingly. So I can't really say that we're getting ahead of them all the time, but it's kind of a, you know, one step on their end and then we're making one step to to achieve their pace. That's Ophir Harpaz from Gardecor Labs. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And joining me once again is Joe Kerrigan. He's from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute, also my co-host over on the Hacking Humans podcast. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. Uh, interesting story came by. This is from WHEC, which is a television station in Rochester, New York, uh, from one of their reporters named Deanna Dewberry, mm-hmm. and she ran into some interesting uh, trouble with her Facebook page. What's going on here, Joe? That's right. She has a professional Facebook page that she maintains on Facebook, of course, and has over uh, 11,000 followers and 10,000 people who like the page. Hmm. Um and at one point in time, recently, her Facebook page has been hijacked. Hmm. Um, and it looks like this was a pretty good social engineering attack that they targeted Deanna. She got a, a notification message 
telling her that she had violated Facebook's community standards and that her account could be disabled, right? Mm. Which is a typical fear tactic that social engineers use to get you to short circuit your thinking. Um, And then was essentially fished for her credentials. So following the advice of these these fraudsters, uh, they'd already gotten her attention. She is prompted to enter her username and password and then change her password. Uh, And then one prompt asks for her ID, which Hmm. made her suspicious, but she researched it. And according to Facebook's help section, they will ask for your ID when there's suspicious activity. Hmm. Now, I don't know about you, Dave, but if Facebook is actually asking me for my driver's license, that's that's it. I'm not going to give Facebook my driver's license, period. Fair enough. I'm not a... I, I don't have a uh, a publicly facing uh, Facebook presence for you know Joe Kerrigan from JHU. That's just not how how I roll. That's I do that on Twitter, uh, but not on Facebook. I had one friend who said to Facebook, "No, I'm not going to give you my ID. I've been on Facebook for ten years. I use a pseudonym, and I like using a pseudonym. And if you don't like that, then we can terminate our relationship right now." And and this person is still on Facebook, so I guess it worked out. Hmm. Um, but uh, this person also doesn't have any public-facing pages as well. But I can see why they wanted it. Now, I will bet that Facebook asked these scammers for the ID, and the scammers just turned around and asked Deanna for her ID, so then they could present it and look like Deanna to Facebook. Once they got control of the page, they deleted all of her posts that were on that page. They completely cleared out the history, and they turned it into a hair care product, and they limited the audience to only people in Vietnam and Cambodia, which is interesting because now her 10,000 or 11,000 followers in the U.S. can't see her page anymore. So right. why would they do this? Then they start selling hair care products. Well, my guess is that they wanted to take over a page that had a lot of followers so that when they limited the access, the global access to these two countries, people in those countries would see, hey, this page already has a lot of followers. It must be legit. Mm, and right. Lots of people like these hair care products. They must be good. Exactly. And one mm. of Deanna's biggest gripes here, and it's a legitimate gripe, is that these people then proceeded to buy advertising to promote this page. And Facebook took advertising dollars from these scammers to promote this page to almost half a million viewers. And she has a legitimate gripe here. Fortunately, she has taken care of uh, of the access to the page and has regained access to it. And I hope uh, that she has enacted two-factor authentication. Facebook offers three ways you can do uh, multi-factor authentication. They'll send you a text message with a code. They'll give you a, uh, a software token that you can use like Google Authenticator with. Or you can actually use something like a YubiKey, use a hardware token. Um, right. And that's how I have my account secured. If you don't want to make the expense of buying a YubiKey, Google Authenticator, I think, is fine. It's it's pretty good. Um, any any of the authentication apps are all pretty much the same uh, inner workings. The only risk is that at some point in time, you have to expose your seed on a web page. Uh, and as long as nobody's taking screenshots of your, of your machine while that's happening, you're going to be fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if somebody is taking screenshots of your machine, if there is somebody malicious on the inside um, and they have that kind of control, then they're going to have access to your to all the, your multi-factor authentication. Uh, but that's kind of low risk. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, so the good news is she got control back. Right. Uh, but it's it's interesting uh, interesting case here. And I guess a reminder that uh, anything that is of value, you should have multi-factor set up for. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. 
it's unfortunate, especially since they deleted all of her content. She was using a lot of the content for writing books and Facebook says they can't restore it for her, which, uh, which I think is unfortunate. Mm-hmm. But yeah. Yeah. Especially as hard as it is to delete a Facebook page or a Facebook <laughs> account, <laughs> right. you know, like really it's a, it's hard to believe that anything's gone forever. Yeah. I don't think that information is gone. I don't think those posts don't <laughs> exist anymore. I just think the right. visibility is set to false and that <laughs> Facebook just doesn't want to take the time to go back through and, and do that for, uh, for Deanna. And yeah. I, I kind of I, I understand why they don't want to do that because because if they do that it, they they may think they have to do it for everybody but they really don't they can be selective um, yeah this is a case here where I think it would be good for them I mean she's got a pretty big following she's a pretty well established and prestigious journalist uh, and I don't think she's going to stop talking about this it may be in Facebook's interest to <laughs> to go ahead and help her out here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right. Interesting story for sure. Joe Kerrigan, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Dave. And that's The Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time, keep you informed, and it's faster than a speeding bullet. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Ivan, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. And now a word from our sponsor, SpyCloud, the leader in operationalizing cybercrime analytics. Traditional threat intelligence is a thing of the past. Cyber criminals are stealing vast amounts of credentials, session cookies, and financial data every day, and it's hard to keep up. SpyCloud is the trusted partner businesses turn to to fully understand their darknet exposure risk and neutralize threats before it's too late. SpyCloud alerts your organization as soon as an employee or customer's data appears on the dark net, so you can act faster than bad actors to prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, session hijacking, account takeover, and online fraud. With insights from the industry's largest repository of recaptured data, protect the digital identities and systems most important to your business. Get your free corporate darknet exposure report at spycloud.com slash cyberwire and see what information criminals have in their hands today. That's spycloud.com slash cyberwire.